The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody here this morning. So it's good, like when people here in the front introduce different practices, if something resonates, then it's important to have just the sense of license to experiment with it at home, make it your own, that's the key, right? Not so that you're dependent on always going to some formal program, but that you're kind of in your own heart, right, in your own mind, figuring out, well, what, what made that work? Why was that a wholesome reflection to do? And even if you fumble around, you know, you can always ask questions or find some readings online to get some more input if you need it. So as I mentioned, uh, and I often do at the beginning of the school year, I always joke how we have this deep imprint in September to kind of get back on the saddle and be a good student. And uh, it's good to reflect, you know, whatever initially attracted us to the Buddhist teachings and meditation practice, kind of get clear like what that was and you know for someone like myself who's been studying these teachings of the Buddha for uh, 37 years or so you know one of the essential themes is this theme of letting go but it's easily misunderstood and the Buddha in his very you know at least as the legend tradition says it in his very first talk he names the shadow which is once we see how complex and messy, difficult the world is, how much suffering there is, how often human beings, when addressing suffering, cause suffering, right? That is really like if you want a theme to analyze human history, right? Human beings suffering and then doing something about their suffering that causes others to suffer, right? All wars, all oppressive systems. It's basically a human being not knowing what to do with their suffering, so they take advantage of others, basically, to create a sense of safety, maybe, who knows. But it never really works, which is why this dynamic repeats itself over and over. And in Buddhism, we call that repeating pattern samsara, right? Like how the mind being distorted by our ways of suffering tries to take care of herself. I mean, there's compassion always in the scene, right? But our compassionate action not being informed by wisdom, we end up causing more suffering. And not just to others. Causing others suffering is a cause for our own suffering. And it's a real tangle and not easy to find our way out of. And so one of the ways out of it is this kind of meditation practice, and meditation held in a very uh, more general sense, not just formally sitting down, although that is really important, but basically looking for conditions that are supportive, where there's enough safety for a moment or for some moments, where the mind, the heart can be reflective, can be experimental, right? If we're not feeling relatively safe, I'm not going to try any new way of being in the world, right? 
when I feel under threat, I'm going to rely on the old habits. I'm going to always do what I've always done, and I'll end up getting what I've always gotten before. That's the cycles of samsara, repeating cycles of suffering. Because that's what we do when we feel oppressed or under threat or too busy or you know whatever. So the, the first thing, and this is going to look different in each of our lives, some of it will involve coming to a place like Common Ground, but hopefully it's more than that, right? You find a way to do it at home. Where can you, how can you find a time where you feel relatively safe from your to-do list, from your kids, from your you know, needy partner or whatever it might be, your needy cat, dog, What's on the TV, you know? You need a break from those tugs on your heart. Some of them are relatively superficial, but not to be dis- dismissed. These addictive things like checking our email or, you know, reading the next this or that. We need to be willing to put down our responsibilities in a way that feels safe in order to do this more primal research. What the hell is going on? <laughs> you know, given that there is this mind and body, what's going on here? How come I keep doing the same thing, getting the same results? How come everybody is just in this repeated, these repeated patterns? Right? Even though we don't, you know, when we do have a breath of space, we don't want to intentionally cause ourselves and others harm. And yet, right, here we go again saying something to a person we really love, our cat, our dog, (laughs) or our partner, right? Saying something that causes harm. There we go again. Even though we don't really want to do it, or a good friend, or, you know, wanting really to contribute at work, but we end up stirring the pot, making things more complicated, more difficult for ourselves and for others. So what the Buddha would suggest is that what we need is to this kind of spiritual humility. I guess I don't really know what's for my own well-being or the well-being of others. Right? I guess I need to do some primal research. I need to look into my experience, the nature of my mind, in a fresh way, not with preconceived ideas expecting, knowing, thinking I know what I'm going to find. And that's what brings us to meditation practice, is that spiritual humility. Being so exhausted and so pushed around by our habits and everybody else's habits and realizing we're going to be caught in these currents forever unless I find some place to disengage. I mean, that's why the community spent so much time and money to create a center like this and why right now the community, all of us, are spending all this time and money to develop Prairie Farm as a retreat property for people to go out because just having a place really helps. Some of you, it's not going to be easy to carve out a little corner in your apartment or house to do this kind of work. It's just too chaotic. There's too much going on. There's too many reminders of responsibilities. right? So you're going to need to pick yourself up and come to 
the place at Kamagaran, we have open sits every morning for that reason. And it lasts for a while because the early morning, 6.30 may not work for you, but maybe the 8.30 sit will, right? So we, we really know, understand, those of us who've been around for a while, understand how hard it is to make a commitment to keep, to value our life and the lives of those around us enough to do this kind of deep research into the heart. What are the causes for suffering? The suffering in my own life and the suffering out in the world. And how am I complicit? How, in the way that I'm living and being, how am I adding to the suffering, my own and others? This is what we're actually interested in. It's just that so many of our approaches to dealing with suffering are counterproductive, like I mentioned. But that's a lot of our learning, right? Is seeing how even though we don't want to, we're contributing to suffering. And that's what drives us in the direction of humility. As the Buddha says in one of his talks, you know, when we suffer, we either cry and blame and complain and lament, or in a very deep and sincere way, we holler, does anybody know anything about human suffering? that I could learn from, right? And then if we're lucky, we bump into some wise teachings that basically say you got to look within, you know? And it's really hard because we have such an external orientation. We think the cause of our suffering mostly is external. Even we externalize ourselves. you know, oh, it's that habit I have. But we blame one thing or another. And when we run out of things to blame, we blame God or life itself, right? As opposed to the kind of Buddhist approaches, whatever it is that's going on, it's a natural process. And as this particular nature of what in Buddhism we call conditionality, we're all participating in this unfolding, this natural unfolding. So even though so much of the complexity of my life is already in motion, how I show up in this moment right now, how I understand, how I'm relating, is part of how this all unfolds. I'm not helpless. I get to participate. Right? We have this very specific way we get to affect this unfolding. So in this way, the Buddhist teachings are not deterministic where we would easily conclude, well, I'm just basically screwed, right? Because it's all in motion, already been determined, what's the point? So we're, we feel this is, what, this is the shadow. People misunderstand Buddhism in this way, that letting go is being com, com, uh, complacent. You know, I'll just get my favorite beverage and my favorite form of entertainment and my favorite little spot let the world do what it does, but you know I'm going to ride this thing to the end, kind of grease my way with as much comfort and ease as I can. And when things get really complicated, I'll use my meditation practice to disengage, to retreat from the complexity and the pain and suffering in the world, get to my little quiet spot. Because you can do that with meditation. You can, it's, and it's useful to, be, to have that skill actually to basically disappear. But it's, you know, in a spiritual sense, 
we do that so we can show up in a fresh way. Right? Because needing to disappear is its own kind of suffering. And then the Buddhist realms of existence, the kind of the stories or mythologies or whatever you want to call it in the Buddhist tradition, kind of one of the most poignant stories is beings that have gotten themselves to a very refined, angelic, celestial realm where everything is just perfect, like heaven, right? Perfect, perfect, for inconceivable length of time. And then in that realm, the dying process happens very quick. You go from being in the full bloom, like a 22-year-old, everything perfect. (laughs) You go from that to death, no time. And then you get reborn, and it feels like such a betrayal because it is the pleasure had been happening long enough that you thought you were there. This is it. No problem. And so it's a little bit like having a really good set. It feels like it solves everything until you hear the baby crying in the distant, right? Or a little sliver of memory comes up about your to-do list or about it's hard to be peaceful when people are suffering and you have you could do something about it right so this is the thing we when even when we disappear we put everything down it's in the service of coming back into the world cuz the freedom i'm looking at looking for and i think most of us would agree is like how to be free when i i have responsibilities I have a body that needs taken care of. I have relationships. I am sensitive to the world around me. I sense the happiness and unhappiness of other beings. And it touches my heart. And my heart is motivated, is moved to do what can be done in a way that doesn't increase the harm. Right? So that freedom to be not to need to disappear the need to not know is its own kind of suffering. And the suffering is expressed in that reawakening when we realize we never really had escaped anyway. It was just temporary. And that's the surprise. It's like when you wake up in the morning, you know, and you had a good sleep, and then you remember, you know, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> right? In some ways, it's better not to forget. Like like even with our own death, as a lot of spiritual teachers remind us, like to live with the understanding of death always there. Like somebody on your shoulder just, yeah, and this will pass, and this will end too. And we don't know when, and we don't know how. Just like Stan, you know, he was a very fit, I don't know, 65 or 67-year-old, you know, and I uh, bicycled, you know, it was really good shape, and boom, got found out he had glioblastoma, this aggressive brain cancer, sometime maybe in June, and however months, number of months that's been, you know, is dead. And so these things happen often enough to remind us that you know what I don't know much, but I know that I don't know when or how. Anybody know when and how it's going to happen? No, we don't. And so that, that like living, because that really helps us understand 
this practice that we tried to do today, which I encourage you to experiment with at home, where you get comfortable, not only before you sit, like where am I going to sit, what do I need to sit comfortably, who do I need to talk to in my house or my apartment, because I'm going to sit to leave me alone or how to take care of me. And then you sit down and you sort of stabilize your posture and stabilize your attitude, generate some wholesome qualities like I care about my life, that's why I'm doing this. I'm humble, I really don't know how to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then you remember some of the teachings like, oh yeah, like Mark was saying, someday I will be sitting next to somebody I love who's dying. And I'll be wondering, like, what can I do to support this person? Well, I remember Mark said, they have to learn how to let go right now. Well, I can be here next to them, also practicing letting go. I can model as best I can what they're figuring out how to do. Right? In Buddhism, we sometimes call this meditating on emptiness, meditating on the mind that's empty of self-centered doing. Right? What is the mind, this heart, this mind, when it's empty, not engaged in self-centered doing, grasping, attaching, identifying? What's that mind like? Now, a lot of what we notice when we're doing this kind of meditation is, oh, here's the mind identifying again. Here's the mind being attached. We catch, precisely because we've chosen this meditation object, we tend to notice attachment more, right? which is really good. We have to see attachment. And then instead of getting attached to being attached, we relate to the attachment with non-attachment. We practice. Of course there's attachment. There's a lot of habit energy around attaching and identifying and grasping and struggling and doing. Right? We do. We all have a lot of habit energy or that way of being. So when we notice it in the sit, we acknowledge it as something being known. Okay, this is the mind struggling to get comfortable, struggling to get rid of that pain in the knee or whatever it might be, or struggling to deal, to solve this problem in my life. Okay, that is one of those conditions that arises and passes away naturally. Seeing this clearly, the Buddha says, leads to the deepest peace the deepest happiness, which is peace. So I don't need to get rid of the attachment. I need to see it as a conditional process that arises, does its dance, when not being fed with attachment, with identification, but just seen as a natural process. That attaching, that grasping, that struggling, that doing will cease on its own. That little mental activity has the nature to arise and to cease. That's a little birth and death right there. The mind, in a sense, gets born as, oh, i got to figure this out in my life, right? So in a way, there's a tendency to take birth as that person right now who's got to figure this out. But now wisdom is present. It sees that birth, that little thing that arose in our mind, as just a natural process. It's not confused by it. It's letting that natural process do whatever it's going to do, without identification, but also without pushing it away. It's giving it space to be a mental phenomena, doing what mental phenomena do. They play themselves out, and then it ceases on its own without anybody, any Buddhist practitioner, getting rid of it. Right? It just ends. 
How else? I mean, our mind would be so crowded if thoughts didn't end on their own. But they do. Think about how many thoughts, how many little dramas, big dramas have ceased in our heart and mind over these, you know, 60, 50, whatever number of years we've been alive. We don't need much more evidence. So when we notice it as a meditator, don't try to make something go away. Notice that it does go away. Really be aware when it goes away because that will confirm what the Buddha says. All conditioned things like thoughts, mental dramas, all conditioned things arise, born, and then cease, pass away. Seeing this clearly, deeply, deeply understanding this aspect of nature, the nature of our mind, leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. And this is what we chant at funerals, like as people interested in the Buddhist teachings, this is sort of the traditional chant that we do. And so this is something just in English to review. Oh, you know, like whenever, even during the day, not during the meditation time, but during the day and there's some difficult thing going on in your life, whatever it might be, then just chant that to yourself, you know. All conditioned things, all experiences arise and pass. This is the law. This is the way it is. Understanding this deeply, being intimate with this reality, the reality that everything comes and goes, leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. It's being peaceful with the nature of everything. The nature of everything is to arise and pass. So we're coming into alignment with what's always been true. So it's basically like two choices. You know, a worldly, ordinary human being, the Buddha might say, is somebody living in a world where everything comes and goes, struggles to find something permanent, some permanent ground, some permanent sense of me or mine to put my stake in, to put my flag in. (laughs) Eddie Azard has such a funny routine about a flag. I don't know if you know this comedian, a very interesting, wonderful comedian, and he just goes on about this sort of habit of humans, you know. Whoa, the f- <laughs> I think he talks about it. About, he's British, so he talks about British colonialism and putting the flag. <laughs> yeah, it's just human suffering. But anyway, this is what we do. We're looking for something to put our flag, the flag of self, me, mine, my, on. And then inevitably, it won't last, so we got to keep, planting that, and there are other people who want to plant a flag there, and we start having problems, right? So this realizing the truth is really, like instead of fighting the underlying nature of everything, the Buddha suggests, well, why don't you come into alignment? Like the way we think, the way we live, the values that we have, why not have that all be in alignment with the reality of change, of this being a natural process where things are coming and going, where there isn't actually ever has been solid, permanent ground. It's just not part of human existence or any existence as much as we can tell. What we know what exists is flow, conditional flow or movement. So what is our mind, heart, 
life like when we're aware of that, living in alignment with that? What does that look like? So that's what I meant when I said that interest. Well, what is this mind, this heart, what is the mind-heart of non-grasping? Because that's a nice, I mean, as words go, concepts go, that's a nice way to think about nibbana or nirvana, this, the unconditioned, as we say in Buddhism, right? freedom. Freedom is realizing, waking up to the heart free of grasping. So the heart that's not looking for ground, but instead the heart that's totally okay with things coming and going, knows how to participate, how to dance in a world where everything is coming and going. So in a, in a funny way, it's like allows for a more full engagement without the self-importance. It's like when the self-importance is teased out, we can dance better. We can engage and navigate and show up and do what we can in life because we're not wasting psychic energy claiming things as I, me, or mine. Right? We're just responding with our sensitive hearts, the hearts that care. So I'll leave it here. Maybe I'll just read this one passage from the Buddha. Whatever is not yours, practitioners, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will be to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is not yours? Material form is not yours. Abandon it. So here material form means what you see, what you hear, what you touch, what you taste, and what you smell. Material form is not yours. Abandon it. Feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness, neutrality of your experiences, not yours. Abandon it. Mental formations, even these intentions and motivations and dispositions that arise when we have experience, seems very personal, these habits, but they're not ours. They arise according to causes and conditions. Did you set all your habits in motion? Your dispositions, your tendencies? No, they got set in motion by culture, by causes and conditions. Abandon, not, you can't get rid of those dispositions. You abandon the identification. It actually helps you take responsibility for your dispositions when you d- realize they're not yours, but they're your responsibility. Consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. Like right now, are you aware? Yeah, right? Conscious, yeah. Are you doing it? I mean, conventionally speaking, we say, yeah, I'm sort of aware. We claim it, but actually, are you doing something to be aware? No, there is awareness. That's what we can say honestly. There is knowing happening, right? If it's really yours, shut it off. You can't. You didn't turn it on. You can't shut it off. It's just nature. But on top of these things, you know, the body and mind stuff, there's a habit, which is a mental habit, of course. What else would it be? It's not a bodily habit, so it has to be a mental habit, which is claiming all of this activity of the body and mind as me, I, me, or mine, right? That's the selfing. That's the only problem 
all of the other problems, the injustice, the terrible suffering we see, arises because of the seed problem, which is the sense of separation, the sense of self as a solid permanent. Because as soon as that's there, then the greed and aversion makes sense. Greed and aversion needs a separate identity, separate self to make sense. What's greed without a separate permanent self? What's hate without a separate permanent self? doesn't arise in a mind that's free of that grasping. So I'll leave it. I'm assuming that there will be some thoughts and reflections from people in the room, from your own practice over the years, and questions, of course, are appropriate. What comes to mind? We have about five or ten minutes. Hey, Mark. Um, I'm Travis. So I'm able to sit here and meditate and just kind of let those thoughts go through. After 37 years of practicing, you ever get to a point where the thoughts are not running through, though, like is what I'm like getting at, like where... Y- you don't need to sit with them as much. Like at your point, are you able to just sit here quietly and not have them run through? Yeah. I mean, there are times when the thoughts get pretty quiet and even fade quite a bit. And any thoughts that might arise would be thoughts that are supportive of further stillness, further quieting, right? So there are skillful thoughts that can come in, right? That don't, that actually support the letting go or a let, letting things be. So yeah, that happens. But that's not really the goal. That's just that very, that retreating from mental activity, really retreating into the still and silent space-like quality of the heart and mind is what you call good samadhi, right? And to the nth degree, that mind can retreat. So that in a sense, everything disappears because the mind has withdrawn from seeing, from hearing. The eyes still work, but the mind isn't paying attention to sight or to sound or to touch or to the grosser level of mental activity, like what we would call normal thought. It's retreated, you could say, back into the mind itself, into the space, the silence, stillness of the mind itself. It's not interested in sensitivity of what we call normal sense experience. It's retreated, so it has a profound vacation from sense experience. So even in a normal sit, like when an experienced meditator, there will be maybe moments during that sit where the mind has really retreated. And if the mind has, the meditation practice has more momentum, then the mind might abide in that quiet place for a longer time. But a lot of us practice not trying to retreat or if we're if the mind is sort of discombobulated because a lot of difficult activity happened then i might purposefully do a meditation that would strengthen and orient towards retreating seclusion right but a lot of times when i'm practicing i'm doing exactly what i said in the instructions i'm just sitting right in the middle and i'm letting it rip so emotions thoughts and i'm learning to not be attached to what's coming and going. And then I get attached. And then I notice that I'm attached. And then I notice that attachment ceases on its own. And then I'm back into that place of just letting it rip, just letting sensations come and go, sounds come and go, thoughts come and go. (laughs) And then it ceases. (laughs) 
Thanks, Travis. Other thoughts or questions people have? Yeah, over here. Hello. Uh, I'm Alan, and uh, I'm still very new to meditation and Buddhism. But um, it's, uh, I, I know something about the 12 steps from earlier in my life. Anyways, it seems to me that part of the essence of what we do here is um, uh, kind of like the serenity prayer. Uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. And um, it's, for me, the hardest part is the wisdom to know the difference. Um, accepting is hard and acting is hard, but the wisdom part is really the hardest. And so my question is, uh, how do you know when you, you made a, a wise choice? Well, you know, what are the indicia? You know, do you see a blue light, or do you? I mean, how do you know? How do you yeah. know you've made a wise choice to act or to accept? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're doing is with the sensitivity, and especially embodied sensitivity, feeling the body, not the gross. I mean, not just the gross sensations in the body, but it. In particular, the more subtle, energetic sensations in the body, then generally when we've acted in unskillful ways, out of greed, out of aversion, there's a visceral reverberation, right? That the impression left in the heart and body for that unskillful action tends to be felt if the mind, if the wisdom's interested in sensing it. But you know, in Buddhism, that what the serenity prayer makes sense. But as a natural process, the wisdom to accept, the wisdom to engage, the wisdom to know the difference, and to see all of that wisdom as a natural process, not something you have to do. So it's not so much learning how to be a saint, but really understanding the nature of saintliness is really about getting out of the way, and so that wisdom to know the difference, it gets refined by making mistakes and acting, thinking we're being wise, and then later feeling the reverberations in our heart and what we sense around us like, oh, that wasn't very skillful. Right? So we make a lot of mistakes, but we learn. That's the key. Nothing's wasted. If we do something right, we really let it in. That was skillful. It's not pride. It's seeing clearly. Oh yeah, that really worked well. Those, I'm so happy that I had the wherewithal to say those words at that time in that way because it feels really clean. It feels really healing to have been part of that. So then that reinforces whatever clarity the mind had. Just like if we have a negative reverberation, oh, that does not feel good. Then it makes us like, well, what did the mind not see? What did wisdom not see there Having, if the wisdom had seen that, maybe it would have acted in a different way. Yeah, thanks, Alan. And I think we have to let the words go here. Let's just take a moment. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together and appreciate the silence. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.